Take your Bibles and let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll be preaching a message that is appropriate for communion, but also for the, the Christmas season. The title of it is A Savior from Sin. A Savior from Sin. I'll not preach as long as I usually do on Sunday morning since we have the Lord's table. We look forward to that. I trust that we don't have a physical table spread today. The message will spread the table spiritually for us. Matthew chapter 1, and let's begin with verse 18 and continue through the end of the chapter. The Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Verse 21 is our theme verse, our real text verse, as the angel said to Joseph, angel Gabriel, and she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. On this communion Sunday that uh, commences the month of Christmas, I'm glad I can say without any stretch at all that the shadow of the cross is cast over the manger. It's no stretch to say that the gospel is found in the incarnation of the Son of God. We will sing it probably today. Jesus was born to die, born to die for sinners. His human everyday name was Jesus. His title is Christ, the promised one, the sent one, the anointed one. There have been many Hispanic boys, especially named Jesus. Some of us that aren't Hispanic almost think that's sacrilegious to name a boy that way. No, it's not. Many, many, many baby boys and Hispanic families have been named Jesus down through the centuries. But there's only one Jesus Christ. There have been many national heroes who have delivered their people. In Latin America, the name Simone Bolivar ranks pretty high. In our country, George Washington. In England, heroes like Sir Francis Drake in 1588 delivered England. There are many national deliverers, but only one Savior from sin. Jesus is His human everyday name, as I said. 
The angel gave that name, first of all, as we read earlier in the service, uh, assigned it to Mary to give to, to her son in the Annunciation. But then when the angel appeared to Joseph by night, and he was troubled because Mary was found pregnant, the angel also gave the name Jesus to Joseph to be given to the Christ child. But to Joseph was given the further explanation, for he shall save his people from their sins. Salvation from sin is what sets Jesus apart. There have been many liberators and deliverers over the centuries, but only one Savior from sin. As it was at the time of Christ, so it is today. Many people are willing to pay lip service to honoring Jesus, but they are not willing to say that He is the only Savior from sin. Those alive at the time of Jesus' birth in Israel were looking for a national deliverer. They wanted one that could overthrow the yoke of Rome and reestablish the kingdom of David with a great show of pomp. But if you'd mentioned to them about someone breaking the yoke of sin and setting up the sinless kingdom of God, that was not on their radar screen. They were not interested in that in the least, with a few exceptions, like the aged Simeon, Anna, Zacharias, Elizabeth, and a few others, who rejoiced to know that unto them had been born in the city of David a Savior from sin. And I want you to meditate with me on that this morning. A Savior from sin, Jesus, the human name, the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Joshua, the one whose birthday we're celebrating this month. I hope that if you can't do so now, you will by the time you leave the service, you will glory in the salvation that Jesus came to purchase and to work out for us by His death on the cross. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 15. He said, this is a faithful saying and it's worthy of all acceptation. In other words, it's worthy of all acceptance. What is that faithful saying? Here it is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul added, of whom I am chief. Notice he didn't say I was chief until I met him on the Damascus road. No, he didn't say that. He said, of whom I am chief. May I remind us all, we are still sinners even after we're saved by the blood of Jesus. And even in heaven, at the table, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will still remember our sins, though they will cause us no grief. How much more should we remember them now when we come to the Lord's table? You say, well, that's pretty depressing, Pastor. Uh, we, we just want to think about Jesus, not us. I admit, if you, talk, if you think too much about yourself, you'll get depressed. But I remind you that at the Passover, there was not only the Paschal lamb, the mutton, there was the bitter herbs. You ever thought about that? The bitter herbs, the hazard the maron. That was usually bitter horseradish. You say, well, that's still 
speaks of the bitter suffering of our Savior. Okay, even if it does, why was it so? What made it so bitter? Your sin and mine. So when we come to the Lord's table, let's think about the bitter herbs and not just the lamb. How can we truly appreciate Jesus as the Passover lamb slain for us until and unless we see ourselves as the filthy, guilty, helpless, hopeless sinners we are? Now, in what ways does the New Testament proclaim that Jesus lived up to His name? How is He able to save us from sin? Let me give you three ways this morning. I hope you remember this, and the outline will be there on the screens to help. Number one, Jesus is able to save from sin completely. Completely. Now, we're Baptists. We're not the so-called holiness. We're not the perfectionists. But we still believe in complete salvation. And I'm glad that I can testify to you this morning that Jesus is a complete Savior. I'm glad I can tell you this morning that Jesus is more than just a fire escape from hell. He is able to save you from the tyranny and the thraldom of sin as well as from its guilt. He's able to deliver you from even the love of sin. And we need to hear that in the day in which we're living. We keep hearing that some people are born a certain way, and even though they shouldn't indulge in that sin, the most that we can expect is just for them to abstain from it and remain celibate and so forth, but they can never be delivered from the pull of sin, from the love of sin. That's not what my Bible says. Let's offer them the hope the Bible offers. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Wherefore He is able also to save them to the uttermost. That means completely. That means all the way. He's able to save them completely. They come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. The reason here that we can know that He is able to save us completely, isn't it interesting? It's not said that it's because of His death. Although His death is paramount. And we'll be commemorating His death this morning with the observance of the Lord's table. But the reason that we can know that He's able to save us completely is because of what He's doing right now. He's alive at the right hand of the Father. He is ever interceding for us. And that's why I know I'm saved this morning. That's why I stay saved. He saves from the penalty of sin, first of all. Sin is pretty expensive. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. I'm afraid that we've grown so accustomed to death that we just accept it as a fact of life. But I remind you, in the beginning, when man left God's creative hand, there was no death. There was no seed of death in him. There was no death in the world, even in the natural realm, until a sin came into the world. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and then death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Oh, what a watershed moment that was when our first parents plunged us into sin. What a holocaust that ushered in. This awareness of the awful penalty for sin decreed by a holy God is usually the first understanding that an awakened sinner comes to. 
studies have been made. I remember reading one years ago in a well-known Bible college at the time. They took a poll of all their students to see what caused them to start thinking about spiritual things and their need of Christ. The vast majority of them said it was the fear of hell. We don't hear much about hell anymore. Yes, the Holy Spirit produces conviction, and then the Holy Spirit brings a sinner to repentance. Fear of hell grips his heart as well it should, but then when he realizes that he's been justified by faith through the Son of God, faith in the Son of God, he enters into that marvelous peace that is spoken of in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. And the blessed Spirit of God bears witness with his own human spirit that he is a child of God. Gone is the guilt, gone is the fear, gone is the panic. Gone are the nightmares. I used to have nightmares before I gave my heart to Christ as a little boy. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We love to sing that mission hymn. It's fast becoming our favorite around here. We didn't have it until recent years. Chris Anderson's great hymn, For the Sake of His Name, and I love that phrase. It says, Tell that when Jesus died, God's wrath was satisfied. That's the crux of our hope. Jesus died in our place. Jesus took the full brunt of the wrath of God against sin when He died on the cross. That's what makes the gospel good news. Jesus paid it all. He suffered all the billows of the wrath of God for sin. In the pioneer days out on the prairies of the West and Midwest, the most dreaded natural disaster really wasn't uh, a tornado, though many places were vulnerable, especially to tornadoes. The most dreaded natural disaster was the prairie fire. And I've read where farmers learned that when they saw that wall of flame Rapidly approaching it meant certain death and loss unless they did something and did something fast. For many of them, there was but one escape if they worked fast enough. They could start a controlled fire that would make a burned-out swath around the house and barn. And the family would huddle in the middle of that sphere, that cut-out swath burned out swath. And when the inferno came to the charred border, it would stop. And in a matter of minutes, it would pass around them. They would see the smoke wafting over, but the flames would pass on either side. Beloved, I'm glad I can tell you this morning there's a burned out spot on Calvary. That's where the wrath of God was poured out in its fury on the form of of His own crucified Son. And if you and I have taken our stand with Him by faith, we are in Him. When the judgment fires fall on this doomed earth at the end, we'll be safe. Just as the household was safe that, that had the blood applied on the door, the Paschal Lamb at Passover time. You see, that's why Jesus came. He came to be our Savior. He saves from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. He saves from the power of sin. 
I love Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. What a trilogy that makes. Some people misunderstand them. They take them chronologically, especially Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gets real, we would say, upfront and personal. He gets real biographical. In Romans chapter 7, if you want to understand that chapter, please remember as you read it that he is describing himself as a believer, not as the self-righteous Saul of Tarsus before conversion. He's describing himself as a believer even though he, was, he knew the Scriptures and he was uh, very righteous outwardly. And he's talking about the struggle between the new nature and the old nature. And he comes to a climax and to a conclusion in verses 21 through 25. If you wish to turn there quickly, Romans chapter 7. Great, great climax that leads into a climax, Romans chapter 8, life in the Spirit. But the last few verses of Romans chapter 7, verse 21, Paul says, I find then a law. Maybe you could make a little note in your Bible, that word law there doesn't mean a law like the Ten Commandments, it means a principle. I find then a principle that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Then he goes on to describe what he means. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's that new nature implanted by God at the moment of regeneration. But, he goes on to say, I see another law, I see another principle, another axiomatic thing in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he says this in the closing verses, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And I'm glad he didn't leave it there. He answers his own question and he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Jesus is a complete Savior. He delivers us from the power of sin and not just the penalty of sin. Thank God Jesus provides more than a fire escape. He gives us holiness on the inside. When His Holy Spirit comes in, and we understand the principle of being mortified to the flesh and alive unto God through the Spirit, He gives us holiness. He quenches the inner fire of lust and anger and malice and envy. You know why? Jesus deals with the root causes. He deals with the bad virus in our blood, not just the symptoms. And that's the message that needs to be screamed from the rooftop, so I'm not hearing a whole lot of amens this morning. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free, Charles Wesley wrote. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Finally, he saves, and I know many of you know this, so I'm not telling you anything new, but we need to be reminded of it. Thirdly, he saves from the very presence of sin. The more a true believer grows in grace, the more he will long for a heaven of holiness. And you've heard me say this a lot lately, and it's not a pet peeve with me necessarily. It's just I've done a lot of funerals. I've done scores of funerals since I've been pastor here. And seldom do I hear anybody talk about heaven as a place of holiness and a place where Jesus is. It's all about where the loved one is. Hey, I've got some real close loved ones in heaven. I can appreciate that. 
But beloved, if the primary reason you want to go to heaven is not to be in a place where there is no sin so that you will be as Jesus is, something is wrong. There shall not enter into that city anything that defileth, we read in the closing verses of the Bible. That means, if I understand things correctly, it's not enough to be forgiven. Now, don't misunderstand me. When Jesus forgives, it's for real. It's for eternal. It's for good. But we must be free from all sin to enter into that city. If God let one sinner into heaven that wasn't perfected and made holy, it would contaminate it for the rest of us. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Well, do we have any promise that we can ever attain to such a state? I'm so glad I can tell you, yes, we do. More than one. But I love 1 John 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. That's, that's right now, here. That's wonderful. But that's not all. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. I mean, by looking at us now, you, you would know what we're going to be like. So we're so full of spots and wrinkles as individuals and as a church. But we know, this is a confident thing, this is not a hope-so thing, but we know that when He shall appear, Jesus, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's the transforming moment. That's the beatific vision, folks. And I don't see Christians getting all excited about that. Now, in times of revival, they do. In times of revival, tears of joy are wept over that. We have the parallel promise of Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that even now our citizenship is in heaven. King James used the word our conversation. It means citizenship. From whence also we look for who? The Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what will He do when we see Him? He will change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious or glorified body, according to the working whereby He is able to subdue all things unto Himself. Did you get that? According to the power that he has, that's the same power that maintains the law of gravity. That's the same power that keeps this planet of 7,000 miles diameter, 25,000 miles circumference, spinning on its axis. And that's the power that is going to deliver us from the very presence of sin and present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Can anybody say hallelujah? Well, you weren't, I didn't give you enough warning, but anyway. Some of you are happy about that. Amen. Oh, my blood-bought brothers and sisters, do we realize that one day we will be fully redeemed? Spirit, soul, and body. That will be redemption complete. And according to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that's what the true child of God groans for along with all creation. And for a pledge that God will finish that work, and will satisfy that desire, He has given us His Holy Spirit, the earnest of the Spirit. Praise God. Well, He's a Savior from sin. He's able to save us completely from sin, but what else can we glean from the New Testament? Jesus is able to save those who belong to Him. He's able to save those who belong to Him, for He shall save His people their sins. Who is that? Is that just the Jewish people? Mm, be careful. No, at his birth the angel said to the shepherds that those 
good tidings of great joy that a Savior would be born shall be not only unto you, but shall be to all people, Luke 2, 10 and 11. Aren't you glad that Gentiles are included with His people? Romans 15, verse 10, quotes from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, when it says, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with all His people. Romans 15, 10. To that echoes the Apostle John in the closing verses of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 3. A great voice out of heaven says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be with them and be their God. I submit to you there won't just be converted Jews in that celestial place. Well, let's review a little bit here and then get a running start. First of all, we need to realize all men are sinners needing salvation. Amen? All men. No baby is born, and we've had a number born this year. Praise the Lord, our nursery is growing. But I want to remind you, no baby is born with a passport stamped for heaven. No, far from it, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that babies go astray from the womb speaking lies. Now, we don't like to talk that way about them. I remember a preacher that I sat under for a while, he said, Honey, them, that's not a halo, them are horns. And they show those horns pretty quickly. And the Bible says in Romans 3, verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not the one. Verse 23, the same chapter, chapter echoes that. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the standard. We're all sinners. We're born that way. We don't... Uh, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And that's why all, Jew and Gentile, male and female, children of good stock and children of rank heathen, they must hear the gospel. They must believe. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. And you know what? Though we know that, we need to realize that this was nothing new when Jesus came on the scene. Don't let your dispensational theology make you think that the plan of salvation changed. Oh, no. This was the recurring theme of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus rebuked His disciples on the afternoon of His resurrection, as He said in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 26. He actually called His own those who were saved, those who were His disciples, fools. He said, oh fools, and slow of heart, not slow of mind, it wasn't that they were deficient in intelligence, no slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into His glory? In other words, He's saying, you should have known, there's no excuse. You should have known because Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, The Lord hath laid on him, on the suffering servant of Jehovah, Jesus, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. You should have known because in Daniel 9 verse 24, the Messiah would first come to not to usher in his kingdom. That's not what it says. He would first come to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, and atone for iniquity. He would first come as a Savior from sin. Said that in the Old Testament. 
That's why Anna and Simeon were looking for redemption in Israel, spiritual redemption. They were looking for salvation spiritually, not politically. That's why a bright angel lit up the heavens proclaiming to the startled shepherds, for unto you is born this day a Savior. They didn't need a seminary degree to understand that if that's the case, somebody somewhere needs saving, and that somebody is all of us. We're all sinners, but we need to remember that all who are His will be saved. If the nation of Israel as a whole was not ready to receive their Messiah born in Bethlehem, because the Bible says He came unto His own, His own received Him not, well, who are His people then? I think you know the answer. All those Jew and Gentile who believe on Him for salvation. They're His people. And I want you to turn to an amazing verse I've shown you a few times before, but it's been a while. In Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, let me give you the background, the setting while you're turning there. The Apostle Paul is laboring in his missionary journeys, and he's come to uh, Achaia, the southern part of, of Greece, to the main city there, Corinth. And things are going pretty rough, and um, the, many of the Corinthians bla- blaspheme, verse 6, and when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads, I'm clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. It was a rough reception Paul got. In verse 9, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by vision, be not afraid. Oh, how reassuring that must have been. But speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. And here's what he said. Here's the reason. For I have much people in this city. I have much people in this city. Question, were they saved yet? Come on, I heard there's about five of you. Were they saved yet? No. Were they going to be saved? Yes. Were they already his people as far as God was concerned? Yep. And Jesus said in John 6, verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What a tremendously reassuring verse. Not one given by the Father to the Son before the foundation of the world, but will come to him for salvation in time, and he will not lose a single one of them. That's the promise of God's Word. We can be assured of that. And and what an encouraging thing that is as I go out witnessing. It's not up to me, folks. I'm just the errand boy. I just give the Word of God. And there are those that are His people and His sheep, and they will respond. They will hear His voice, and they will come. Oh, we're afraid to go that way. We're afraid somebody brand us a Calvinist. Just just be afraid to accept what the Bible says. Forget the labels, forget the names, forget the people. Just believe the Bible. If the Bible doesn't say it, don't believe it. If the Bible does, it's there for a reason. We, we can be assured of these things. I need to say this. You know I don't back off from a controversy. 
I don't want to do it just for controversy's sake. But there's something you're probably seeing on your TV screens these days that you need to be aware of. There's an effort to rebrand Jesus. There's a hundred million dollar campaign out there on TV commercials during major sporting events that's called He Gets Us. Let me just tell you, they may say He gets us, but they don't get Jesus. It paints Jesus as an activist and a social warrior. And with $100 million, it's probably going to keep up for a while. If you haven't seen it yet, you're going to see it. We don't have to repackage Jesus to sell Him. All we need to do is lift up the crucified Christ. He'll draw all men unto Him. He's not a social warrior. He's not just an example. He is the Savior. And because he is, and because the Bible says that all men shall be drawn unto him, and everyone that has been given to him by the Father will come to him, we can be assured that the gospel cannot fail. Jesus shall save his people. Okay, we'll move on. Number three, Jesus is able to keep from falling. Would you turn to the little book of Jude? Jude only has one chapter, so we don't talk about chapter numbers. We just talk about verse numbers. Jude verse 24, as we come to the triumphant, climatic, doxological closing of this little epistle. Verse 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The word falling there, maybe you have it even translated this way in, in your version of the Bible, means stumbling. Ordinarily, one stumbles as a prelude to falling. Or before you start falling, I have a tendency to drag a foot, and I don't like little throw rugs around. But I usually catch myself before I go all the way down. But you usually start stumbling before you fall. How many of God's dear children keep stumbling over and over and over again with the same besetting sins? It may be temper, it may be gluttony, and we're not supposed to talk about that, but the Bible does, and greed and lust. Oh, they don't outright fall into murder and adultery or even apostasy, but they've never learned to recover themselves when they first stumble. They get spiritually feeble. They get prematurely old. Like the Bible says in Hosea chapter 7, verse 9, gray hairs are here and there upon them, but they know it not. They fail to look into the mirror of God's Word, so they don't even realize that their spiritual health is declining. Maybe that fits somebody here today. Oh, I want to tell you to arrest you and to encourage you. Jesus can keep you from stumbling. So you won't fall. You say, how does he do that, preacher? Well, number one, he keeps through his power. You see, we're pretty special to him. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. 
We are His purchased possession. We are His own treasure. We are His inheritance that He's reserved unto Himself. And 1 Peter 1 verse 5 says that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm so glad He's holding on to me. It's not up to me holding on to Him. He keeps through His power. That's the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Can I just say this? You cannot have the Holy Spirit and it not affect you. Oh, I'm not talking about something spooky. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or getting goosebumps all over. Some people think that's the Spirit of God. No, that's something else. But you cannot have the Holy Spirit and it not affect you. Because if you have the Spirit, He is the filial Spirit. And He will call you and He will make you feel your sonship. And the Bible says this in Romans 8 verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, do mortify, do put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. God chastens every son whom He receives. Why? so that we will partake of His holiness. You've heard it said, and it's not just a cliche, it's so true. God doesn't whip the devil's kids. He holds His own to a higher standard. God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead when they lied to Him. He doesn't do that with all liars. Why did He do that with them? Because they claim to know Him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, God chastens every son whom He receives. Oh, beloved, let's learn to kiss the hand that smites us, because it's love. We're sanctified through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're kept, we're sanctified through the Word of God. Brother Gustavo is preaching verse by verse through John 17, right before we have our service to the Hispanic congregation. Some really good stuff. I can hear some of it coming through the intercom. I think he got to verse today where Jesus said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. He was given solid truth, just solid truth from the Word of God. And that same chapter, chapter 17 of John, verse 17 says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And maybe your parents did it for you like my parents did it for me in the first Bible I ever got, in the flyleaf of it. I have it somewhere. I don't know where. It says, they put this, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And how true that is. I praise the Lord for that. How I've gone back to that again and again. If you are being tempted right now, you know what the great need of your life is? Take megadoses of the Word of God. I remember uh, when uh, Ivy... Palmer uh, was up in Alaska. Her mother is here today, Miss Becky. And um, they started having problems with their two sons, Nathaniel and Micah. They were acting strange. Something was wrong. And she went checking around with everybody. And people came up with this hypothesis and that hypothesis. And finally, it wasn't even a doctor that said it. It was somebody else that said, uh, your, your boys have a vitamin D3 deficiency because they're getting so little sun up here. And so she, the doctor said, well, I'll give them 50,000 units, as I recall. I think that was the figure, Becky. 50,000 units of vitamin D3. And sure enough, they perked right up. I would love to see us get 50,000 units or some kind of megadose of the Word of God. 
and it would change our behavior. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Does that still work? He keeps us through the word, his power, through his spirit. He keeps us through his prayers. We've talked about the praying Christ, but I want you to catch another glimpse of the praying Jesus in the true Lord's Prayer in chapter 17 of John. Look at verse 11. Could you turn there and then we'll be done here. John 17 and uh, verse 11. Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And then in verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And it could imply the evil one. That's the prayer of Jesus. That's the true Lord's prayer. That's the way he's praying for you and for me right now. He's praying for you and for me just as surely as he prayed for Peter when he told him in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Simon, that was his ordinary name, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, the word means turned again. doesn't mean that he wasn't saved, but when thou art turned again, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus prayed for Peter the most. Why? Because he knew Peter was the most tempted. Yesterday I was able to join an international Zoom prayer call. I try to take in every Saturday. Sometimes I'm not able to because of my schedule. It was a blessed time, an unusually sweet time. to hear people all over the world praying. And I didn't give the devotional, but it touched my heart to hear about four or five people pray for me by name. They called me Pastor Bob. I, they don't know how to pronounce my last name. I've never told them. But they prayed for me as I got into the pulpit today that God would use me and empower me. I can't tell you what that meant to my heart, but then it suddenly dawned on me, wait a minute, Jesus is praying for me all the time. Oh, how encouraging that should be, how that should make us bold as lions. Robert Murray McShane was the great Scottish preacher in Dundee, Scotland, a century and a half ago, and he talked about this one time. He said, if you knew that Jesus was in the next room praying for you, wouldn't that hearten you and encourage you? And then he said this, should the distance make any difference? He is praying for you. How we need to remember that. What an unspeakable privilege it is to be kept by Jesus from stumbling. It's not a luxury, it's a necessity. He continues to save us by his present life. How much more shall we be saved by his life, Paul says in Romans. That's his present life on the throne. Shall we not exercise ourselves unto godliness daily? Shall we not build up those spiritual muscles? You know, if you go to the doctor and you tell them, doctor, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm just, I'm getting real weak. Uh, I, I don't chew my food very well. I can't grip anything. My, my knee's waver when I try to get up in the morning. He's going to be concerned about your overall constitution. He's not just going to prescribe something for one particular symptom. 
It is the weak man or woman who is most susceptible to falling. If we're not careful, a heavy load will cause us to stumble. Some of you are bearing extra heavy loads right now. And I'm praying for you, and Jesus is too. But if you have an extra heavy load, be careful. Satan can use that to cause you to lose heart, to give up, to surrender to easy compromises and soft surrenders. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. Casting all your care upon Him, on Jesus, for He careth for you. Aren't you glad Jesus is strong enough to bear both you and your burden? Jesus was born a Savior. That's what His name means. His very mission, He stated Himself. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Everything about this baby, if you think about it, just shouts salvation, spiritual salvation. The Old Testament prophets foretold it. The angels announced it. Simeon witnessed it. Anna proclaimed it. Mary pondered it in her heart. The masses neglected it. The magi from the distant east searched it out and found it to be true. He's a Savior. Do you know Him? How have you responded to Him, who is God's salvation? One day it will be shown whether you're one of His people. He shall save His people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus, who came to be our Savior from sin, yea, our very salvation. Thank you for making him unto us, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As we gaze upon these elements in just a moment, would you remind us in our hearts, our consciences, would you just tell us, I did this to be your Savior. My body was broken for you. My blood was shed for you. I suffered all the taunts and jeers and insults of humanity, the offscouring of humanity, without saying anything, so that I could redeem you. Oh God, sanctify this precious ordinance to our hearts and lives just now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.